Hello, everybody. This is Queer Voices, a home-produced podcast that has grown out of a radio show that's been on the air in Houston, Texas for several decades. This week, Brian Levinka talks with Brian Clusterbor, a staff attorney for the ACLU. Tuesday, the governor sent a letter telling the Department of Family Protective Services to investigate families. And that, that is overreach of the government's power and authority. And it's wrong for any uh, child protective services worker or anyone to be targeting families simply for loving and supporting their kids and taking them to licensed healthcare providers. Deborah Moncrief Bell has a conversation with Kennedy Lofton, Development Director at the Montrose Center in Houston. And what we're seeing is more and more youth are coming out, both as transgender and expressing their true gender identity, as well as gay and lesbian, pansexual, bisexual. And what's exciting about that is our community is much bigger than we thought it was. And these youth are pushing back and in, in, in school districts, in classrooms across our region. We have an interview with Ben Chow, a candidate for Harris County Commissioner, and we have news wrap from This Way Out. Queer Voices starts now. This is Brian Levinka, and today I'm speaking with Brian Clusterbor, ACLU staff attorney, about an extremely heinous letter from our governor, Greg Abbott. Welcome, Brian, to Queer Voices. Thank you for having me. So this letter came out this week, and we wanted to talk about it, and especially what does it mean to the trans community? Can you tell us about the letter and what it means? It's been a really hard and scary week for a lot of families here in Texas. Uh, we've been expecting uh, the attorney general to issue an opinion about this since August, when Representative Matt Kraus, who at that time was also running for attorney general, sent a request for an opinion to Ken Paxton's office asking for the attorney general's opinion about certain types of medical care that's often provided to transgender youth. From the very beginning, this has been part of a long and sustained campaign attacking and targeting transgender young people here in Texas. And unfortunately, you know, this letter and opinion, which we'll get into, even though it has no legal effect, has spread a lot of fear and misinformation and has been highly partisan. It's no coincidence that it's coming out a week before the primary election. And some of these politicians have repeatedly attacked transgender Texans. Is this just another way to gear up their base so they can get more votes? I mean, it seems out of left field. Yeah, unfortunately, it's been part of an ongoing pattern. I mean, we saw the last legislative session, a record number of bills filed targeting all LGBTQ Texans, but particularly our transgender youth. And they have latched on to the healthcare issue in particular, spreading a lot of lies and misinformation. They often conflate surgeries, which are typically never happening for, for minors at all, with things like puberty blockers and hormone therapy, which have been going on for decades. You know, they, they're trying to make it sound like this kind of healthcare is something new, but it's not. Every single major medical association has agreed and made clear that this is life-saving, medically necessary care for certain youth, depending on individual patients. And these are choices that are made with parents and, and guardians who are loving and supporting their kids, working with licensed healthcare professionals. It's not the role of the governor or attorney general to invade people's privacy and to strip away their healthcare. And thankfully, they don't have the right to do that either. So this opinion 
attorney general opinions in Texas are not binding and they don't have any legal effect. Uh, and the governor's letter and directive telling, uh, so he sent a letter the day after that Ken Paxton's opinion came out on Monday. And on Tuesday, the governor sent a letter telling the Department of Family Protective Services to investigate families. And that that is overreach of the government's power and authority. And it's wrong for any uh, child protective services worker or anyone to be targeting families simply for loving and supporting their kids and taking them to licensed healthcare providers. Encouraging people to investigate and to turn in people that are getting this kind of care. Is that correct? So there's a little lot of fear and misinformation and confusion and chaos. And I think that's part of one of the goals of the political leaders who did this. They emphasize that here in Texas, every single person is a mandatory reporter of child abuse and neglect. And they emphasized in their opinion and letter that the mandatory reporting requirements, which typically apply the most to people like teachers, social workers, pediatricians, counselors, they reminded people of that obligation and are basically you know, implying that people should be reporting families and if they have any suspicion of people providing this gender affirming health care. We don't think that has any legal effect. We don't think anyone should be making calls into CPS, but worryingly, you know, we're already hearing there is a lot of false reporting that's going on and people are confused and now are mistakenly reporting people. And even worse, a lot of times they're now reporting people. They don't even know anything about the healthcare that certain young people are receiving, but they might report people simply for being transgender. And so now we're going to have a situation where there's a lot of false reporting going into the agency. And DFPS is already severely understaffed. We have a massive foster care crisis in our state right now. And it's a huge drain on resources for them to spend any time at all pursuing these false allegations that families who are loving and supporting their kids could at all be possibly committing child abuse. It's a really horrendous situation. It's a very serious offense, child abuse. You can't just ignore that. So they have to be investigated. So that takes resources. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. The the child abuse laws here in Texas are very strong and robust for good reason. You know, there is real abuse and neglect that happens. And and CPS and DFPS have already been, you know, like I said, they're very understaffed. There have been kids who have been sleeping in CPS offices without placements. So there's already a massive crisis in the foster care system and in the, the child welfare system here in Texas. And for them to spend any time at all going after and trying to deny people health care, which has been based on decades of scientific research and evidence-based best practices. The opinion that Ken Paxton wrote, frankly, was not worth any of the paper it was written on. It would get an F in any kind of high school, college, or law school class. We went through every single citation in his so-called opinion, and none of the citations support what was in the text. And so he's trying to conclude with no basis that this type of healthcare somehow harms the youth who receive it and that it's not consensual, you know, that with the doctors, patients, and the young people themselves all have to be in alignment with the parents and the families that it is medically necessary care. One really important thing to note as well is the opinion itself is very, it's poorly researched and poorly written and confusing. The opinion says that it does not apply to any medically necessary care. And that's really important. But then the rest of the opinion goes on to assume with no basis whatsoever 
that none of these other treatments like puberty blockers or hormones can be medically necessary. But that's flat out wrong. Every single major medical association here in Texas and across the country, all the hospital systems all agree that this kind of care can and is often medically necessary depending on the unique needs of every patient. Do we know what will happen if this care stops? Will there be more suicide attempts? It's really a scary moment right now. You know, we know that there have been studies showing that this type of health care is life-saving care, that suicide, suicide ideation goes down when young people are able to be who they are, to receive the care that they need, to thrive and live successful lives. And I think that's what's so devastating. You know, in this moment, people, some of the political leaders are, tr- are basically trying to make it so that trans Texans can't exist. But we have seen this week an incredible pushback against their plans. And thousands of people have been speaking up. They've been getting loud. They've been mobilizing. Unfortunately, some people are, are, are justifiably afraid and have now moved out of state. But a lot of people are saying, you know, we're, we are Texans. We're not leaving. We're not going anywhere. We're staying and we're fighting back. We're speaking with Brian Klusselbohr from the ACLU of Texas, a staff attorney, about Greg Abbott's letter attacking trans children in health care. Brian, what is the ACLU doing now? So we've been talking with a lot of families and, and others, teachers, social workers, telling people what this means, that it has no legal effect, that the governor and attorney general cannot change Texas law. They can't redefine what the health care and try to make it fall within child abuse. But it is a scary time. We're actively monitoring what's happening with uh, DFPS. We're hoping that they don't waste any resources investigating families who are simply loving and supporting their kids. But we're, we're seeing what's next and exploring our options right now. Is there a chance that this could become law? Will they like push this off until the session starts? So unfortunately, last session, there were several bills filed targeting gender-affirming health care for trans youth. Those bills failed. They were defeated. But it was absolutely terrifying for so many families. One of the bills that hundreds of people came and testified against would have explicitly made it a felony for any parent or loved one to provide their young person with gender-affirming health care. Thankfully, that bill died. But a very similar bill passed in Arkansas, which was the first state in the country to ban this type of gender-affirming health care, the ACLU filed suit, and that law was blocked by a federal court. And still today in Arkansas and in every other state, this type of health care is perfectly legal. It's based on decades of scientific research and evidence-based best practices of medical care, and trans youth are able to receive that care. But it is a scary moment when lawmakers and legislators are playing politics with kids' lives, and they're trying to deny and cut off this health care. Ken Paxton actually filed a brief in the Arkansas case that's now on appeal before the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. So he and others are kind of staking their political careers on harming and targeting these kids, which is completely unconscionable. So what can we do as LGBT advocates for trans health care? Well, one important thing, obviously, is to vote. It's no coincidence that this opinion was released a week before the primary election. It's been a partisan political attack from the beginning. 
And I think people need to speak up and stand up. You know, they are targeting on purpose a smaller group of people that is not, I mean, it is a significant number, but it is a minority for a reason that they, they pick out minority groups as a punching bag, which is similar to what they're doing across the board on issues like abortion and voting rights. A lot of our rights and civil liberties here in Texas are under attack and people need to speak up and stand up, particularly for transgender youth in this moment. I think wherever people are at to, to get involved and to lean into it, especially I'm hoping that businesses will also stand up. You know, we have Pride Month coming up in a couple months, and it really would be hollow for businesses to, to share their pride if they're not actively standing up for the most vulnerable group in our community right now. What do we tell healthcare workers that are worried about maybe their future careers? They want to provide gender care. What, what, what can we tell them? Now more than ever, we need more healthcare providers also standing up for trans young people, being willing to provide this care. This letter and opinion doesn't change anything. This type of gender affirming healthcare is still legal here in Texas and all 50 states, but we need more providers and people educating and training themselves to give competent gender affirming healthcare which sadly has been lacking in general. And so, so it's sad that there already are not enough providers and even the healthcare for trans adults often is quite lacking and needs to be improved. Unfortunately, the way that certain political leaders are targeting this type of healthcare, we might see it become somewhat similar to abortion care where doctors and providers have to be brave and, and take risks to pr continue providing this essential life-saving care. And it, should, it shouldn't be needed. It should not become politicized because every single major medical association is in agreement that this is necessary care, but it might become something where people have to, to be brave and to keep providing the care even when it's under attack. So what else is the ACLU working on? So a lot of our work has been protecting transgender students in schools and all students in schools. We have a website called txtranskids.org that we have a comprehensive toolkit. So any student or per young person who is discriminated against or faces bullying or harassment in schools can check out that toolkit, which also has a list of resources, including mental health resources, ways to reach out to us. So that's txtranskids.org. And what's really sad about this opinion is that Paxton and Abbott are adding to a culture of bullying and hatred and harassment towards LGBTQ young people. That we've already seen so much of that in Texas schools, and we're fighting back and pushing back against that. But whenever they spread this kind of hatred and misinformation, it just makes it so much worse that LGBTQ young people in schools who already were facing bullying now have to worry even more about people invading their privacy and possibly even mistakenly reporting them to CPS. Before we go, is there anything else you want people to know about trans care, transgender care, and the ACLU? We want to be clear to every teacher, social worker, healthcare provider out there that this does not change anything. Just keep doing what you're doing. Keep supporting LGBTQ young people. The governor and attorney general do not have the authority to rewrite the Texas Family Code or change Texas law. So just keep loving and supporting our youth. And to all the trans young people out there, know that we are fighting for you. We have your back and we will not stop.
And is there a website people can get more information about the ACLU and the work that you're doing? Yes, our website is aclutx.org. And the other website I mentioned that we partner with TENT, the Transgender Education Network of Texas, Equality Texas, and Lambda Legal. And we all run a website together called txtranskids.org. Thank you for coming on, Brian Klosterbohr. Hope I got that right the last time. Yes, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, and this is Queer Voices. Smart speakers sure are handy things. Suppose you're coming home from grocery shopping with your hands full. You can say, computer, open the door for me. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Oh, well, um, you can ask your smart speaker almost anything. Like, what's the time? Sorry, I didn't understand the question I heard. Okay, well, at least you can ask your smart speaker to play Queer Voices. Somehow, it knows where to find our podcast and it will just play it for you. If you don't want to do that, you can check out our website, queervoices.org. There you can find links to our current and past podcasts and playlists of the music we present. That's queervoices.org. Coffee Black. Make it yourself. This is Deborah Moncrief-Bell, and I'm talking today with Kennedy Lofton from the Montreux Senate. Kennedy is the development director but he has lots of news about things that are happening at the Montrose Center, including the upcoming Bringing in the Green, an annual fundraising event that usually takes place close to St. Patrick's Day. Hi, Kennedy. Hi, Deb. It's great to be here. Tell me a little bit about Bringing in the Green. When did the Montrose Center first start doing it and what is it about? Bringing in the Green is one of these great house parties that has been in our community for decades. This year, it's celebrating its 30th year, and it is a time around St. Patty's Day where the community gets together and typically raises money for our Hatch program. There have been some great community leaders like John Danielson, who have been hosts over the year, and this year, we're excited to bring it back to Glenn and Justin Dixon's home for our 30th Bringing in the Green. What happens at Bringing in the Green? Bringing in the Green is a good Montrosian house party, full bar, wine, beer, delicious food from David Alcorta, and a lot of opportunities to you know, spend money for the Montrose Center on silent auctions, raffles, and this year especially, catch up with a lot of your friends you haven't seen in a while. Yes, that's always a fun thing. And I've been to some Bringing in the Green events in the past and always immensely enjoyed them. Um, And I love the catchy title. It's one of the best, just fits, you're bringing in the green, you're bringing in the money, but also because of the St. Patrick's Day aspect of it. So that's a lot of fun. And so you you say that this, now, is it always for Hatch or is this different programs? Since I've been around, really, for the last five or six years, it's all gone toward Hatch. And Hatch is our LGBTQ youth program, which includes a drop-in center, youth rapid rehousing for our homeless youth, mental health, free therapy, all kinds of programs, everything up until a Hatch youth prom, which we're bringing back this June, too. So there's a lot of money that needs to be raised, and there's a lot going on with our youth right now. This is a very important year. The pandemic has not been kind to LGBTQ youth, and we've become very aware at the Montrose Center of an unprecedented mental health crisis that our youth are going through right now. 
During the pandemic, more than 42% of our youth seriously considered attempting suicide, which is much higher than normal. And that's partially because only a third, only 33% were quarantined in affirming households where they could be their true self, where they could live their sexuality and their gender identity. And so Hatch is working overtime to expand our programming, launch our movie nights, bring back prom and do everything that we can to reach these youth so they know they have a whole big community out here that loves them and supports them. And even though they've had a really hard pandemic, they have a lot of really positive things to look forward to in the future. And that's what Bringing in the Green is all about, giving us the money to do all of those incredible things. You told me that Hatch is now in its 35th year. That is right. Hatch was founded in 1987 at a church group right around the corner from the Montrose Center. And 35 years later, there are thousands of youth that are impacted by the program every year. Housing programs, uh, in-school programs, after-school programs, drop-in centers, uh, all kinds of really incredible offerings that also connect our youth to our sliding scale to free mental health offerings. Right now, we're really focused on getting as many of our youth into free therapy as we can coming out of the pandemic. Uh, The program was maintained, I think, through Zoom so that there were online things available. How did that go? How has that been? So it was, it was tough and we kind of saw a somewhat of a drop in our numbers, but we, we kept on, we kept doing everything that we could online. So our Hatch Junior converted, that's for our uh, seven to 14 year olds that went virtual. Our three night a week Hatch drop-in center went virtual. All of our therapy went virtual. And unfortunately, a lot of our big events that we're known for, like the prom and creating a safer space for our youth to march in the Pride Festival. All of those things ended and all of those in-person elements, the movie nights, the field trips, the prom, all of those things are really some of our youth's favorite. And so we're excited that come March 1st, we are getting back into business and we're going to be able to get them back together and do incredible things, including hosting movie nights back again at the community center here at the Montreux Center. When Hatch started, it was an acronym. Tell well, me. it's no longer an acronym, Ms. Deb, because what, they, what everyone thought made a lot of sense in 1987 doesn't really <laughs> hold up, nor does it fully represent the full diversity of Hatch now. But I'll tell you, just for historical purposes, what it used to stand for. In 1987, they named this group the Houston Area Teen Coalition of Homosexuals, which we don't say anymore. We just use Hatch because it's got so much history and it means so much to all of our Hatch alumni, everyone that's hatched out and all of our Hatchlings. We've just kept Hatch, even though we ditched the acronym quite a long time ago. So we don't even capitalize it anymore. It's only capitalized H, lowercase a-t-c-h. The H group for Hatch is what? We have Hatch Junior, which is 7 to 14. And then Hatch... I guess regular <laughs> is uh, eight to 20. And then our youth rapid rehousing is 18 to 25. So technically our hatch programming is from seven to 25. And this is a group that's coming up in a whole new world, not only because of the pandemic, but because of social media, because of the portrayals in television and movies of various life styles I was laughing because I was thinking they're trying to have this thing in Florida where they're restricting what can be said in the classroom about 
they, they call it the uh, don't say gay bill. Right. Although it's a little more involved than that. And I'm like, are they trying to put the genie back in the bottle? There are definitely movements that I think are partially in response to how far our community has come, whether it's restricting books or banning websites like the Montrose Center or banning books or, you know, 30 different anti-LGBTQ bills in front of the legislature, most of them targeting youth. All of that is is shocking. And, and we're hard at work fighting all of those things that we can. But what's so great is these youth are not taking it lying down. The youth are leading the fights against each of these initiatives. And they're very empowered. And what we're seeing is more and more youth are coming out, both as transgender and expressing their true gender identity, as well as gay and lesbian, pansexual, bisexual. And what's exciting about that is our community is much bigger than we thought it was. And these youth are pushing back and in, in, in school districts, in classrooms across our region. And it's great because we can just support their efforts and add to what they're doing and let them take the lead and really advocate for themselves. I think about the amazing group of queer kiddos in Katy that have been really hard at this right now. So the Katy ISD districts have, you know, banned the Montrose Center, banned the Trevor Project, and restricted all of these websites. And the youth just said no. They've gone to school boards and they've spoken, they've organized through their uh, gender and sexuality alliances, the GSAs. They've connected across all the different schools and found ally teachers and are really, really fighting. And in fact, that ISD has even reached out to the Montrose Center for training because the youth have been so successful in really letting the, the school district know, no, this is not the way that we're going to get our resources. We're going to have access to Montrose Center, Trevor Project, to all of these important, important resources while we're on these campuses. Are some of these young people, people that have been in the Hatch program? Absolutely. And they're also, we also work really hard to support and empower the GSA network. And these are after-school clubs typically. And we do trainings every year and we bring them together and we help connect them to great resources like the ACLU that lets them make sure they understand their rights on campus, both as the advisors as well as the students. Um, and so we're really connected into this network. And then when they start a fight, they, of course, let us know and then let important organizations like Outsmart know. And then we can all kind of come together and support them as they, they make their schools affirming for everybody. I grew up in Crosby, Texas. It was not an affirming place. I was scared to death that someone was going to find out that I was gay. And I feared for my life. These youth are creating whole different kinds of experiences by making their campuses affirming. And for all of those other kiddos that are closeted, they see these out and proud youth fighting. And I, I just can only imagine what it must mean to them on these campuses. And not to mention, it help, also helps spread the word about all of our resources in the community. By being connected to these GSAs and having them come to Hatch, they learn about everything that's available, not just at the Montrose Center, but across the community. When the important events are, when Pride is, when what PFLAG is active in their area. And I love seeing that happening because I felt like I was the only gay guy in all of my part of Northeast Houston. It was pre-internet. I'm dating myself a little bit. I really thought I was the only person that was gay and that it was something to be deeply ashamed of. These hatchlings and other queer youth, they, they're, they're not having that experience. And they're much better. So by not having to go through that. It makes me very proud having been active with the Montrose Center for some time myself 
back when it first started and attending the support groups and the coming out groups. And although I came out at, at an older age, I, w- I was in my mid thirties before I came out. So, it, it, you know, I have a, a bit of a different experience than younger people who realize that identity about themselves. Now, how do people learn about Hatch to begin with? How do, how do the kids come to you? Well, they come a lot of different ways. We spend a lot of time training teachers, counselors, nurses, so that any school that will let us in, we can create affirming pathways into services. And we do regular stuff. We advertise, especially around our big events. So with Hatch Prom coming up in early June, we will be flyering all the campuses, putting out posters, making sure that even if there's not a GSA, or a Montreal Center presence in these schools somewhere, we can still get in there and find affirming individuals, people that volunteer here. We're so fortunate at the Montreal Center. We have 2,200 volunteers active, scattered all around Houston. A lot of them are teachers. And so we kind of can use our networks and leverage this kind of machine that you help build, Deb. And I want to thank you for being a board member of the Montrose Center. Board service is no joke. And anyone out there listening that's inspired and wants to join a board, I know a great one. And if it's not the Montrose Center, every single LGBTQ organization in Houston right now needs board leadership because we haven't been able to get together in our public in-person events and find you and recruit you. So reach out to your favorite org and see if they need help at the top. I bet you they do. That's an excellent point. And I will say again, as I always remind people, when you volunteer for something, you will meet the best people you'll ever know in your life. Because other people that give of themselves and help programs such as Hatch, such as the Montrose Center, you have a passion for something and a commitment to it. And these folks do, too. So that's what makes us so wonderful. Uh, the, the miracle of the Montrose Center is that it was created by our community. You know, I live at Law Harrington now, which is a program of the Montrose Center for senior housing, affordable senior housing. And I just am so amazed from those early days of the Montrose Center to what it is now. We're getting them starting at age eight, providing services. What are some of the other things? Once the kids are, have graduated from Hatch, <laughs> we will call it, what other services are there for them? So we call it ha- hatching out or being right. hatched out. When, when someone hatches out, there hasn't been a lot. But in honor of the 35th anniversary, the Montrose Center is launching the Montrose Center Rising Leaders right after, like this summer, basically, during the Pride season. And that's going to be a young professional organization for members of our community from ages 21 to 40 that's really built around service. There's a lot of service opportunities, including at Law Harrington, that the Montreal Center offers, as well as other community organizations that partner with us. We want to make sure when our youth hatch out, they can still really stay involved in the community. We're working on an event that I'm really excited about because we've really expanded our pantry and the, the amount of food that we give out now with five pantries, one at Law Harrington. And so one of the rising leader events is going to be um, food for mimosas. So if you bring food to the pantry, depending on how much food you get, it's how many free mimosas you get. So it'll be a fun networking event for our rising leaders and we'll get to stock the pantry. And when is that going to be? We have not launched yet. So you kind of, you, you're actually hearing this first. We haven't put this out, but we're going to uh, probably launch with our leaders 
Um, we were originally going to launch in January, and Omicron pushed it back. So we haven't right. set a new date to launch, but it will be happening this year. That sounds like a lot of fun. I'm talking with Kennedy Lawson from the Montrose Center. This is Deborah Moncrief Bell. You're listening to Queer Voices. Tell me again about the details about bringing in the green. When is it? Where is it? How do people find out more? First of all, you can find out more about Hatch Youth Services and bringing in the green at MontroseCenter.org. And then bringing in the green will be the Friday after St. Patty's Day. So Friday, March 18th starting at 5 p.m. at Glenn and Justin's home at 2346 Roxton Road. And it is an open bar, food, fun event. If you go to MontroCenter.org, you can purchase tickets in advance or tickets at the door. So is there anything that I neglected to ask you about that you want to say? I think we covered all of it, but I just want to circle back and say this is a really tough time for our youth. They're being targeted politically. They're coming out of a really tough pandemic where they lost their school counselors and their GSAs and their affirming spaces. And we all need to do whatever we can to create safer spaces for our youth because we're seeing the highest levels of attempted suicide that we've ever seen. And our community already leads for youth attempting suicide. So this is a part of the work for all of us to get involved in. And you can do that in your own community, affirming youth. You can do that by pushing back against political attacks. Or you can get ready for the big events that are coming up and volunteer with us as we plan prom and pride and fun stuff like that. Well, thanks so much for being with us today. You're listening to Queer Voices. This is Glenn from Queer Voices. You're listening to KPFT. That means you're already participating just by listening. But how about doing more? KPFT is totally listener-funded which means it's people like you who are making donations who support this community resource. KPFT has no corporate or government strings attached funding, which means we're free to program responsibly but without outside influence. Will you participate in KPFT financially? This station needs everyone who listens to chip in a few dollars to keep the station going because that's the way it works. Even if you're listening over the internet on another continent, you can still contribute. Please become an active member of the listener community by making a tax-deductible contribution. Please take a minute to visit kpft.org and click on the red Donate Now button. Thank you. This is Brian Livinka, and today we're speaking with Ben Chow, a candidate for Harris County Commissioner Precinct 4. Welcome to Queer Voices, Ben. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. So tell us about yourself and why you're running. Yeah, so I am a native Houstonian. Again, my name is Ben Chow. I am running for a Harris County Commissioner Precinct 4 in large part because I think there's oftentimes a lack of visibility and diversity in our government offices. Uh, For example, if elected, I'll be the first Asian American and also the first openly gay person to ever serve in our county commissioner's court, which is our county government. And, you know, I think it's a large part of how do we, um, you know, as a young person growing up, I didn't ever see openly gay role models um, here in Houston until Mayor Parker got elected. And for the first time, that was when I was in college. I thought, you know, if I wanted to give politics a shot that, you know, I finally saw that there was an opportunity that I could actually be who I was uh, without being ashamed and live life fully, openly and happily um, if I wanted to go that particular um, career route. 
And so I think the same can be said for our county government. How do we continue to break these glass barriers so that uh, more young folks um, who are LGBTQ can see uh, people who are like them, who look like them, who have similar experiences, um, be able to explore career opportunities that they never felt were open to them. So how did you end up on the county commissioner race? Yeah, this particular race is important to me. You know, the biggest issues uh, I, in, in this area are uh, so many potholes on the streets, you know, the flooding in the area and also rising crime. But I would say for me, you know, along the areas that I've lived in, there are always just so many darn potholes everywhere I go and across the city of Houston and outside in the unincorporated areas as well. And about, I've always just wondered, you know, why is it so hard to get something so simple like fixing a pothole done? Um, uh, I, you know, was just so curious about it that I bought myself uh, a 50 pounds of asphalt actually off of Amazon and went to go and fix a pothole myself just to see, you know, is it really honestly that hard? And it took me and uh, uh, my friend, my campaign manager, um, about 10 minutes, just the two of us, and we filled a pothole. Um, it was very simple. We had a broom, we had asphalt, and we had a car. And we just ran over the asphalt as instructions told us to. Um, but it's just a reminder of saying, like, if potholes are honestly not that difficult to fix, why is it taking our government, our local government, so long just to fix our roads? Uh, why can't we get it more, you know, done more quickly? And I think a large part of it is we need leaders who are um, willing, who, who see the problems, who live and breathe the problems on a day-to-day basis and really care about just getting things done for our people. And so that's a big reason why I'm running. You know, we got we to gotta get things done here for Harris County. We got to fix the roads. So can you talk about Precinct 4? Where is that exactly? Yeah, Precinct 4 is the west side of Harris County. So the easternmost parts of my district goes through the River Oaks, Upper Kirby area. Everything along Shepherd and west, west of Shepherd is in my district all the way to Katy. So as long as you're in Harris County, uh, if you're in, in anywhere in between, so Cypress, you have Ailey, Sharpstown, Gulfton, the Galleria, those are all inside of my district. So maybe some of our listeners don't know what a county commissioner does. Can you talk about the, the role of the county commissioner? Sure, yeah. So the county commissioner is basically like the city council for the county. Uh, Our county judge, Lena Hidalgo, is like the mayor of the county, and the county commissioners are the city council members, and there are four of us. Each one of us have a district. Um, In a sense, uh, our county commissioners have two areas that we oversee. One is the incorporated area, so the city of Houston, and the other there is the unincorporated. So think about Katy, Cypress, so on and so forth. In the unincorporated areas, the county commissioners have full control of the local issues there. So fixing our roads, flooding, so on and so forth, uh, because there is no city, there is no mayor there. Inside the incorporated area, so in the city of Houston, we work with the city of Houston and the city council members hand in hand to uh, continue to do all the work that they're doing to assist them financially with work that they need done, like fixing the roads. So you spoke about running as an LGBT candidate. Can you tell me why that's important to you? Yeah, absolutely. I think, as I mentioned before, like it's important to have role models, right, for people in large part so that young folks can see that this is a potential career path that's open to them. But also because I think it means something in this particular time here in Texas politics and Texas news media where we see trans kids being attacked by our governor where we see, um, you know, the curriculum of book banning and online censorship of LGBT content on websites 
Um, when I announced my candidacy in November this past year, uh, one of the students in Katie ISD actually reached out to me uh, because they thought that, um, you know, or not thought, but uh, the uh, school board in Katie had actually banned access from their websites, school websites, to websites like the Human Rights Campaign and the Trevor Project, which is ridiculous. And the filter that they used to block these websites was called Alternative Lifestyles. Because apparently being LGBTQ in 2022 and 2021 is still considered an alternative lifestyle that is not acceptable. Um, and so when that student asked me to come and speak to their school and then also to their school board, I absolutely agreed. Because, you know, as a young person, I grew up, I went to Fort Bend ISD. Um, if I had the same kind of, you know, school leaders, our local leaders consistently telling us that our lifestyles are alternative and are wrong, then I... I might not be here who I am today, you know? And so I wanted them to know that there were, you know, I hate to say that I'm an adult because I'm only 31, but I, I was proud to be one of the few adults who showed up for these young students to show them that, you know, this is not just a student issue. This is something that the community stands with you. Um, and I don't even live in the Katy ISD area. I live closer to Memorial, um, but I was happy to drive out there and be a part of that discussion because it's so important, especially as we see our governor attacking trans kids right now. And I think you see in the recent news about Texas children, um, that Texas Children's Hospital stopping to provide um, care, uh, transition gender affirming care to trans kids. I think that's just absolutely terrible. And I really hope that our local leaders, our district attorney and others step up and say that we will refuse to prosecute any parents, any adults for allowing their children to go through gender affirming uh, care, because that is exactly what our trans kids need. Um, and it is, it's, it's just horrifying to see this happen in 2022. You know, and I think for the record, Kim Ogg, our district attorney, has come on officially said that she would not prosecute uh, these these abs absurd crimes, so-called crimes, as dictated so by, by the governor and the attorney general. So if you're joining us, we're speaking with Ben Chow, candidate for Harris County Commissioner, Precinct 4. Uh, ben, what are your, some of your qualifications and endorsements that you've gotten from the community? Yes, absolutely. I am so proud of all the endorsements that we've earned. Um, so the LGBT Victory Fund, the national organization dedicated to electing LGBT, LGBT candidates to office has endorsed our campaign. I'm super grateful for their support. So I have national organizations like them, as well as Run for Something, which is dedicated to electing candidates who are under the age of 40, who are progressives to office. I've also got a number of organizations at the local level, such as the Texas Organizing Project and the Greater Heights Democrats that are uh, on board with my campaign as well. So, you know, we've got national and local support. And I think what we're going to continue doing is building the momentum uh, that we've seen in the election results on the primary in March for the first round uh, to help us to get to the runoff and be successful in May. So the runoff is May 24th. Correct. Okay. Um, I need to disclose that I'm on the board of the LGBTQ Victory Fund. So I just want to disclose that publicly. And we did endorse your campaign. So is there anything else, Ben, you want our listeners to know before we head out? Yeah, I want folks to think about this. Like we are in a time where right now it seems like Politics at the local level, at the state level, are just harming our communities, right? It feels almost like as if I remember growing up, 
um, in 2004 when George W. Bush came out and wanted to push all of these constitutional amendments to the states that banned uh, gay marriage. Remember those times? That's kind of what it feels like right right now with states going to as far right as possible, but attacking you know trans kids in particular. And I think this is an opportunity for us as a community to come back together, to stand up and remind ourselves like there's a reason why organizations like the LGBTQ Victory Fund exists, right? There's a reason why the Human Rights Campaign and so many trans uh, organizations exist. And it's for this cause that we can never keep stop fighting for our community, uh, no matter when times are good, because moments like these will always come back and bite us. So we got to keep standing up. We got to keep fighting. We got to keep supporting each other. And I'm just so happy and honored to be a part of this podcast. So, Brian, thank you so much for having me on today. You've been speaking with Ben Chow, candidate for Harris County Commissioner, Precinct 4. Uh, we're not going to tell you to go vote, but early voting starts on May 16th through the 20th, and the election day is May 24th. So, Ben, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This is Queer Voices. Part of our Queer Voices community listens on KPFT, which is a nonprofit community radio station. And as such, KPFT does not endorse or hold any standing on matters of politics. If you would like equal airtime to represent an alternative point of view, please contact us through kpft.org or our own website at queervoices.org. This is Queer Voices. I'm Joe Bainline. And I'm Tanya Kane Perry. With NewsWrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending March 5th, 2022. In Singapore, it's once more with feeling as the law against gay male sex prevails in court. But this time, the feeling is slightly better to some. The city-state's five-judge court of appeal dismissed the latest challenge to Penal Code Section 377A on February 28th, upholding the High Court's ruling in 2020. 377A is a holdover from British colonial rule enacted in 1938. It criminalizes private consensual adult sex between men and carries a penalty of two years in prison. The Court of Appeal deferred any changes in the law to Parliament while reasoning that it is unenforceable. Therefore, the justices concluded that the three activists who challenged the High Court decision do not face any real and credible threat of prosecution. In other words, since no one's being prosecuted for gay sex, leaving things as they are is okay. The organizers of Singapore's annual LGBTQ-supportive Pink Dot gathering don't think it's okay. They call the court's assurance that the law is not enforceable cold comfort because they said Section 377A's real impact lies in how it perpetuates discrimination across every aspect of life, at home, in schools, in the workplace, in our media, and even access to vital services like healthcare. Thousands attend Pink Dot every year, and the crowds are growing. However, Prime Minister Lee Sien Long defends keeping 377A on the books because he says Singaporeans are not that liberal on these matters. Queer activists and their allies vow to continue to fight for repeal. Colombia's Constitutional Court ruled this week that people should have the option to identify as non-binary on official government documents. 
The decision supported a 40-year-old Colombian who was assigned male at birth and began transitioning at the age of 20. Dani Garcia changed their name in 2015. Garcia tried to get the gender marker on their government ID changed to indeterminate, but the National Registry rejected that request in 2019. The court ordered the registry to issue Garcia a new ID with a non-binary gender designation. The March 1st ruling called the introduction of a third gender option an initial step towards effective social participation for countless trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming Colombians. This advance follows a similar move last week in Mexico. A non-binary law student there got a judge to authorize an official change of the gender marker on their birth certificate. It's been months since lawmakers in Yucatan, Mexico, amended the state constitution to establish marriage equality, but they had to modify related existing laws before lesbian and gay couples could begin walking down the aisle. That work is done, and publication in the Government Gazette on March 3rd made it official. Yucatan is the 25th of Mexico's 31 states to gain marriage equality. A 2015 ruling by the Supreme Court of Justice of the Nation called denying civil marriage to same-gender couples a violation of the Constitution. However, the court could only order each state to deal with the matter on its own. The Federal District of Mexico City had already enacted marriage equality in 2009. Eighteen states did it legislatively. Four states have marriage equality because of court rulings. In two states, the executive branch stopped enforcement of the state's ban. One state decided it never had a ban on the books in the first place. His problematic religious discrimination bill has collapsed again. So, Australia's evangelical Christian prime minister is turning on young transgender athletes. Scott Morrison praised a proposal by Tasmanian Liberal Party Senator Claire Chandler to clarify that athletic competition based only on biological sex is entirely legal and does not discriminate. Chandler's amendment to the Sex Discrimination Act is terrific, in Morrison's opinion. He said he's given her great encouragement for her so-called Save Women's Sports Bill. Human rights groups like Equality Australia have a different perspective. Their media statement called on lawmakers to stand with trans kids and reject Chandler's cruel and divisive bill. The proposal will likely be all talk until after national elections in May. Equality Tasmania's Dr. Charlie Burton condemned Morrison for using trans people as a political football. He said, We completely reject the cynical abuse of trans people as a weapon in the Prime Minister's political and electoral game-playing. Save Women's Sports Bill proponents predict easy passage in Parliament. However, Five Liberal Party members of Morrison's coalition government crossed the floor to sink his religious discrimination bill precisely because of its discriminatory provisions targeting trans, non-binary, and non-conforming youth. Finally, who would censor Friends? 
The wildly popular TV sitcom still flourishes in reruns around the world, even in China, where it had been available to stream online until 2018. Now the government is cracking down on popular media, and in re-release, it's not so friendly to the show's queer characters. Fans familiar with the series are howling about the disappearance of friend Ross's ex-wife Carol and her lesbian partner. Even the show's LGBTQ references have been deleted or mistranslated. Major Chinese streaming sites like Tencent, Baidu's Aichi Incorporated, Alibaba's Yuku, and Bilibili started showing a laundered version of the first season in February. The missing elements are noticeable to many viewers because the show gained an extensive fan base in China in the 1990s through pirated DVDs or downloads. In recent years, China has shut down tens of thousands of websites and social media accounts, many with queer content. Authorities claimed they contained illegal content as well as vulgar and pornographic material. Even references by friend Joey to go out to a strip club have been translated as let's go out to play. Chinese President Xi Jinping ushered in a blanket ban on queer portrayals on television in 2016. Last year, the government's TV ban was extended to what it called sissy men. Posts and comments with related hashtags about the censorship have earned tens of millions of views trending on China's leading social media platform, Weibo. One user complained, covering your mouth and ears does not mean non-existent. Another wondered how the censors would handle a storyline in later seasons that has friend Phoebe birthing triplets as a surrogate for her brother and his partner. That's News Wrap, global queer news with attitude, for the week ending March 5th, 2022. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappelle, produced by Brian DeShazer, and brought to you by you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. And you can read the transcript and listen to News Wrap each week by subscribing to our This Way Out radio channel on YouTube. For This Way Out, I'm Joe Bainline. Stay healthy. And I'm Tanya Kane Perry. Stay safe. This Way Out delivers LGBTQ news and culture to more than 150 local communities on radio stations around the world. And we are also a free online news service. You can choose your favorite way to listen, online or on the air, at thiswayout.org. Please, sign up for our free e-newsletter, Inside This Way Out. We will respect your trust in us and make sure your personal information is never shared with others. Just send us an email at info at thiswayout.org to receive the informative and unique addition to the show. You'll be invited to join us for a more in-depth look into our stories and be encouraged to learn more about This Way Out's three decades of broadcast activism. We hope you choose to join us in celebration of LGBTQ history and culture. Email us at info at thiswayout.org to join the movement. We'll make sure you always know what's going on inside This Way Out. This has been Queer Voices, which is now a home-produced podcast and available from several podcasting sources. 
Check our webpage, QueerVoices.org, for more information. Queer Voices executive producer is Brian Lavinka. Andrew Edmondson and Deborah Moncrief-Bell are frequent contributors. The News Wrap segment is part of another podcast called This Way Out, which is produced in Los Angeles. Some of the material in this program has been edited to improve clarity and runtime. This program does not endorse any political views or animal species. Views, opinions, and endorsements are those of the participants and the organizations they represent. In case of death, please discontinue use and discard remaining products. For Queer Voices, I'm Glenn Holt.